William Shakespeare had been a father for about two years by the time the first permanent English settlement in America was founded. He had not yet written any of his plays, he was 19 or 20 at the time, and when the Roanoke Colony, which is sometimes called the Lost Colony, was found abandoned with the mysterious clue Croatoan carved into a tree, Shakespeare had probably written his first play, Henry VI, Part One. These things were going on at the same time, when the New World was being colonized, during which time Native Americans would be slaughtered, Shakespeare was becoming the greatest playwright England or even the world had ever seen. Halley's Comet appeared on Christmas night in 1758, fulfilling the prediction of Edmund Halley, who had calculated the comet's cycle years prior. A few months before the comet's appearance, French colonial troops defeated a much larger joint force made up of British and colonial American soldiers and irregulars at the Battle of Ticonderoga near the border between New York and Vermont. The gunpowder weapons used in that conflict, and indeed the weapons available during the Revolutionary War and during December of 1791, were the musket, the rifle, and the pistol. Of course, the cannon was in use, but we're going to restrict our discussion to handheld weapons. What were those handheld weapons? I'm glad you asked. The musket was the primary weapon for American soldiers. The particular favorite was called the Brown Best, and it fired either a single ball or a bunch of little ones, sort of like a shotgun. It was a muzzle loader, which meant after each shot, you had to put a new ball into the gun from the place where the balls came out. In addition, you had to insert a new charge and tamp it down with a ramrod, and also insert wadding to keep the whole assembly together. Sometimes soldiers had pre-made cartridges, which were all those ingredients pre-made and bundled together in little packets. They usually came in groups of 12 and were carried on a bandolier, which is sort of like a strap that hung around your chest. For this reason, sometimes the cartridges were called apostles. Anyway, all this meant that a trained soldier could probably fire his weapon about three or four times a minute. So it'd be fire and fire again if this man was trained well. And that would be assuming the gunpowder didn't get wet or blow away or nothing was happening to distract the musketeer, frequently muskets would misfire. Either they wouldn't fire at all, or they would fire but fail to propel the ball. Because muskets were smoothbore, meaning the inside of the gun where the ball flew out, which is called the barrel, was smooth, the balls would come out with all kinds of crazy spin. Musket balls were considerably smaller than the barrels into which they were loaded, because black powder weapons had a tendency to clog easily. This meant the balls rattled around when they were fired and came out at odd trajectories. In addition, musket balls were not always uniformly spherical. Also, muskets generally didn't have a sight, which is sort of a nub on the weapon to help you know where you were aiming. On average, a musket ball left a brown bass at approximately 1,000 feet per second. At 100 yards distance, the musket ball would have dropped about 18 inches from the height at which it was fired assuming it hadn't veered off in some other direction due to the unpredictable spin. Add all this together and you have a weapon that, when fired by a single soldier at a single human being, 
at a range of 100 yards was generally not accurate. Recall also that a human being, even one slightly encumbered by gear, can charge 100 yards in about 15 seconds, which was the average reloading time. So if you were standing 100 yards away and someone shot a smoothbore musket at you, they'd almost certainly miss, and you'd be able to either get to him and tackle him before he could reload, or you could put another 100 yards distance between you and him before he could fire a second time. Why then were muskets even used if they were so inaccurate? Well, in the late 18th century, you'd line up your forces in a single or sometimes double file line, pointed that line at the enemy who was likely doing the same to you. You'd fire all your weapons simultaneously so that the volley of musket balls would be likely to have some that would hit their targets. You'd then either order your men to reload or to charge with their bayonets, which is kind of a knife that attached to the musket, which turned it into sort of spear. And you'd fight hand to hand. Timing when to charge and when to reload was a major part of military tactics. If you were caught reloading when the enemy was charging, You'd either reload fast enough to fire at a close-range enemy, which increased accuracy, or the enemy would get to you before you could reload, and you'd be in a bad position to receive the charge. Pistols were generally reserved to wealthy soldiers, like officers, and were often carried in pairs. Pistols were favored by naval personnel due to the chaotic nature of close fighting and boarding actions. Pistols did not have much impact in the Revolutionary War, though they were sometimes used in private dueling. Standard dueling protocol involved distances of 30 to 60 feet. There was all kinds of etiquette describing which guy got to choose weapons, which guy got to choose the ground they stood on, the distance they fired at, and so on and so forth. In the dueling code, which was a real thing, there's a provision for what happens if both guys have shot twice and no one has been hit, which was rather common with those inaccurate weapons. Now, there were indeed rifle muskets in the late 18th century, the obvious difference between them and smoothbore ones was that there were these grooves inside the barrel of the rifle that made the rifle ball come out with a consistent and regular spin, increasing the weapon's accuracy. In addition, the rifle ball was fitted much more exactly to the size of the barrel, so there's a lot less rattling around. This meant that rifles were accurate to a distance of about 300 yards as opposed to 100 Riflemen were nominally used as snipers, and indeed, these snipers often shot and killed British officers to disrupt command and control. The thing is, due to their design, late 18th century rifles had an even longer and more complex reloading process. They could also not fit a bayonet, were more expensive, and required significant training on the part of the riflemen. George Washington, in command of the Continental Army, argued for only limited use of rifles and favored muskets for all those reasons. These were the gunpowder hand weapons available in America in December of 1791. That's when the Second Amendment to the Constitution was ratified. It's a remarkably short amendment, only 27 words long. It goes like this. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. That's it. Alexander Hamilton, who, by the way, was later killed in a duel, wrote in 1788 that the purpose of this right was to establish state militias to serve as a sort of counterbalance to any standing federal army. The idea being that if ever the federal government became tyrannical and tried to enforce its will via military might, state militias could resist that tyranny with their own arms. 
Other members of the group we call our Founding Fathers concurred with this view. There's been a lot of ink spilled debating what exactly is meant by the first part of the amendment, the bit about a well-regulated militia. That's an argument for another time. What's not in dispute is the general idea that framers had in mind. That an armed citizenry, in whatever form that meant, is vital to keep the federal government from becoming tyrannical and able to enforce that tyranny through force. In other words, even if we throw out the well-regulated militia part, the intent here was to keep the government in check. That might have been a workable idea in 1791. After all, President Trump's bizarre comments notwithstanding, there were no airplanes, submarines, tactical nuclear missiles, drones, or any other modern weapons we have now during the late 18th century. An armed citizenry would be more or less equal in technology and arms to any federal army that might be raised. So then, if the intent of the amendment is to arm the citizenry to keep the federal government honest, let's see what we're up against. The U.S. military has about 1,600 tanks ready for frontline combat. In addition, it has about 13,000 military aircraft ready to engage. The Navy has about 430 active and reserve warships, from aircraft carriers to submarines. The Feds have about 1.3 million soldiers in the various branches of government active and reserve, not counting the National Guard, which was federalized in the early 20th century and therefore shouldn't count as a state militia, or so says the NRA. That's an additional 440,000, bringing the total federal troops up to about 1.7 million. The feds also have about 6,800 nuclear warheads, about 1,800 of which are on active deployment. They've also got about 10,000 drones or unmanned aerial systems available to the tyrants in Washington should they ever decide to unleash them on their own citizens. There are also federal law enforcement officers, spies, investigators, cybernetic warfare technicians, psychological warfare specialists, chemical and biological warfare operatives, and others available to wage war against our own citizens should the federal government wish to do so. All right then, our side. What about active militias in the U.S. to fight against this tyrannical government? Well, the number of people in active militias is extremely hard to come by. They tend to not report. But their numbers did swell when President Obama was elected, go figure. But based on Homeland Security numbers, it's reasonable to conclude that figure is around 50,000 people. Those guys don't have a lot of tanks, airplanes, submarines, or ballistic missiles. So then, what is the point of arming civilians? The original rationale behind the Second Amendment was to keep the federal government in check with an armed citizenry. Based on the enormous gulf between the federal military's power and that of the citizenry, I see only two options. First, we can try to help the citizenry catch up so they'd be an effective deterrent to the federal armed forces. That would mean placing tanks, fighters, bombers, nuclear submarines, and ballistic missiles in the hands of militias. We need to make sure ordinary citizens had access to, or indeed were required to possess, tactical nuclear weapons, biological agents, and aircraft carriers in order to provide some counterbalance to the feds. Well, that's clearly out. My pool isn't big enough to hold a Nimitz-class aircraft carrier. The other option would be to reread the Second Amendment, since the original purpose is really no longer valid. Many gun freedom proponents argue that the reason we need to carry guns is to protect ourselves from everyone else who has guns. 
not the federal government so much as other citizens. Yeah, the amendment makes absolutely no mention of that, but we can choose to recast its original purpose to fit the times. I mean, the Constitution needs to adapt to the times, yes? What? No? You're an originalist? Well then, we need to take the original founders completely within their own context. That means they were allowing gun ownership of the types of weapons available to them at the time. Muzzle-loading smoothbore muskets or rifles that took half a minute to fire and reload. Go ahead and bear those arms. Oh, and you can have dueling pistols that were once in a while able to fire properly and hit a target 30 feet away. You don't like that? You think the Constitution needs to cover modern weapons too? In other words, we need to see the provisions of the Constitution in the light of 21st century reality, right? The reality of the 21st century is that the United States is by far more prone to gun violence than any other country. In 2017, the U.S. had a rate of homicide by gun death of about 4.43 per 100,000 people. Needless to say, this rate is incredibly high when compared to other developed countries. Japan, for example, has a rate of 0.04 violent gun deaths, not counting suicide, per 100,000 people. That's about one out of every quarter million people. And when you factor how wealthy we are in the United States and compare it to a sort of global mean, in other words, how much gun violence is normal for a country based on its wealth, then we should be at about 0.46 violent deaths per 100,000 people. We're 10 times higher than that. We need to reread the Second Amendment and make it fit to modern times, yes? Well, these are those times.